This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. The companies that comprise the S&P 500 Financials Index have benefited from a dramatic uptick in investor sentiment since the election of Donald Trump to the U.S. presidency on November 8th. My guest today, Richard Ramsden, oversaw the just-concluded Goldman Sachs Financial Services Conference here in New York, where he heard from CEOs, investors, and analysts in this space about what they think lies ahead for the industry. We'll talk about what he learned and his outlook for the sector in 2017. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So the so-called Trump trade that we've seen since the U.S. election has benefited risk assets broadly, but the financial sector in particular. What's made this sector so promising for investors in the wake of the election? I think it's two main components that are driving it. The first, and I think probably the most important, is the dramatic change in interest rate expectations since the election. So the yield curve has steepened 70 basis points since November the 7th, and the market is now pricing in a series of rate hikes starting this month, but going into 2017 and 2018. Banks benefit disproportionately from increases in interest rates, especially from this very low level. And they benefit in two ways. The first is their deposit books become a lot more profitable in a rising rate environment. And secondly, their loan books also reprice as interest rates go up. So effectively, what they start to see is a widening of net interest margins that leads to faster revenue growth. So the market has started to price that in. And if you just mark to market consensus earnings estimates for the move in interest rate expectations over the last month, that alone adds something in the region of 10 to 12% to earnings estimates. The second component is the market's anticipation that you could start to see changes in the regulatory framework. I think it's still too soon to conclude exactly what will change. A lot, of, a lot of factors at play. There's in... a lot of factors at play, and there's certainly more questions than answers. But I do think there's a view that the regulatory environment is likely to change, in particular for some of the smaller banking institutions, where even prior to the election, I think there was a view that the regulatory burden on some of the smaller banks was, was just too great. The flip side of that is we've long heard CEOs in this industry, and, and equity analysts for that matter, mention policy uncertainty as an impediment to investment and growth. How do the CEOs at the conference now say they're managing uncertainty around this particular political transition? And are they starting to shift a bit more out of this cost-cutting mode we've been in since the crisis into a growth-oriented mode? There's certainly a view that the growth environment within the United States over the next one to two years could end up looking very different to what they thought prior to the election. And I think there's two components to that as well. The first is it seems clear that the top priority of the incoming administration is corporate tax reform. And corporate tax reform could have a very material impact on the willingness and ability of U.S. corporates to invest. And a number of banks said that when they talk to, especially the small and mid-sized businesses that are clients of their firms, that there has been this reluctance to invest because of the uncertainty around the broader operating environment, which is now starting to thaw. I think the second thing is that the banks have seen this improvement in consumer confidence really starting 18 months ago that started to accelerate. So the banks gave a few numbers around what's been happening in terms of consumer spending, and it's now running at around 5 to 6% growth just in terms of payments across their systems year on year, which is the highest that you've seen since the financial crisis. So I think there is this view that you will see an acceleration in terms of capex and inward investment, 
And that's going to be compounded by growing confidence within the consumer sector, which obviously creates a very beneficial environment for banks because that typically leads to an acceleration in terms of loan demand. So what are they saying specifically about demand for credit in this environment? And is the consumer spending money they have or are they beginning to run up their balance sheets a little bit? So I think relative to where we were a year ago, the biggest delta is actually on consumer loan demand. So really starting this year, you finally started to see consumers relever their balance sheets from a very low level. So if you look at consumer leverage, so consumers' personal balance sheets, they were the least levered they have been since 2003. Relative to income? Yeah, relative to income. income. You know, and what you're finally now starting to see is that consumers are willing to borrow a little bit more, both on credit cards, but also through personal loans. On the corporate side, you've seen consistently good loan demand, but you are now starting to see more interest in particular from some of the smaller businesses. Most banks have said it's too soon to say what the impact on the election will be on the corporate side, but they've had a number of conversations with clients that suggest that line utilizations will start growing in the early part of next year, given that the uncertainty, frankly, of the election is over, which was one of the big impediments in terms of investment. So as loan demand picks up, we begin to think about quality. What's the outlook for credit quality? Are there segments of the market where you're seeing risks rise, defaults rise, particularly as rates increase? I think that's certainly something that people are focused on. I mean, credit within the banking system today remains very benign. So credit quality is the best that it's really been in 20 or 30 years. And if you do see an uptick in losses, it's going to be from a very low level. The only areas where banks are pointing to where there are some residual concerns is parts of the commercial real estate market, construction in particular, but it's very localized. So there are some concerns around overconstruction in Manhattan, in Miami, in parts of San Francisco. And there are some concerns within the auto loan market given that that was one of the first categories to recover post the crisis, and you've seen a considerable easing of lending standards. The thing to keep in mind, though, is credit quality is really driven by two things. It's driven by increases in unemployment, and it's driven by corporate bankruptcies. Both of those are still moving in the right direction. You continue to see job creation, and corporate bankruptcies continue to be very, very low. So unless you see something changing the employment picture or something that impacts the health of U.S. corporates, it's very unlikely that credit quality is going to deteriorate. Let's go back to interest rates. Last year at this time, the Fed was about to raise its interest rate for the first time in nearly a decade. And investors, everyone really, was thinking 2016 is the year when we normalize U.S. monetary policy. That didn't happen, obviously. But we're again hearing, as you mentioned, expectations of multiple rate increases in the year ahead. If those expectations play out, this time. What does it mean for banks? How quickly are they able to capture the rise in rates you know, and bring them to the bottom line? You bring up a good point because in actual fact, all the rate market has done this year is round tripped. So we are actually exactly back to where we were a year ago in terms of the level of the 10-year and in terms of what the market is now expecting uh, in the for year rate ahead. rises in yeah. the year ahead. And I think the reason there's greater confidence this time round is that A number of the policies that the incoming administration looks like they're going to pursue are going to be quite inflationary. So the repatriation of cash from outside of the U.S., which could run into the hundreds of billions of dollars, coupled with the infrastructure spending, which the incoming administration is talking about, is a fairly powerful cocktail in terms of driving economic growth, frankly, at a time 
that unemployment is frankly back to what we've described as normal levels. I mean, certainly a number of economists would say that the US is actually close to full employment. So I think what's happened is that inflation expectations have started to pick up largely as a result of a number of the policies that the market believes the incoming administration is going to pursue. In terms of how quickly do the banks benefit, they benefit instantaneously. So if interest rates start to go up, if you have a floating rate loan, that loan reprices typically within a month. If interest rates go up and you have a deposit at a bank, the probability is that they will not pass on the full benefit of that rate increase to you. They're going to keep a slice of it and they will benefit from that. So they're capturing more well. of the spread. Now. They're capturing more of the spread. Yeah. Look, historically, if interest rates go up, let's say 100 basis points, the banking industry on average will pass half of that to their deposit clients and they'll keep half of it for themselves in the form of higher the, spread With income. the newest loans, yeah. Yes. So the president-elect made a big point in his campaign that he was going to reinvent or undo a lot of regulation. And his pick for Treasury Secretary has already talked about focusing on particular areas of financial regulation that he thinks are hurting lending. Mm -hmm. Let's not talk about specific regulations, but where could the new Trump administration act early and begin to show that they're making a difference? I think the area that you're going to see the greatest focus on is the amount of cash that is sitting idle on bank balance sheets. I think the banking industry has this view that QE has not been as successful as it could have been because the Fed has printed a lot of money. The money has ended up on bank balance sheets. But because of requirements, which are new post the financial crisis that force banks to hold more and more liquidity, all those banks have done is put that money back to the Fed. And therefore, the velocity of money has been very low. I think the, the banking, transmission mechanism yeah, really isn't functioning. Yeah. So the banks, yeah, exactly. I, the banks are saying, look, there is a trade-off between reducing systemic risk relative to driving economic growth. I mean, banks, by definition, are levered entities. But if banks can't lend because of regulations, it does have an impact on the economy. So I think there is going to be, I think, more of a focus in ensuring that some of the cash that the banks are sitting on is redeployed into productive uses within the economy. I think that's the one area that you could actually see the greatest change early on. And can the Fed just flip a switch and do that? Or is that really a psychology issue where the banks will feel a little more comfortable knowing that they're going to get relief on some of these liquidity No, you need, you need the rules. The banks are not going to preempt any rule changes. You need to see rule changes before behavior changes. So it does require the Fed in particular to go back and rethink some of the rules that were put in place post the financial crisis in Dodd-Frank. But if they did, it, it could obviously have a fairly powerful impact. So one of the great stories over the past few years has been the real burst of activity in the financial technology or fintech sector. And obviously, they're taking advantage of technology and also a reasonably favorable regulatory environment where many of the pure play fintech companies are really outside the scope of regulation. What's the outlook for that space as we move into what feels like a new era for finance and has been hyped as a new era for finance? And how are the banks you're covering, the bigger banks, the more mature banks, responding to that threat? So I think that's a really interesting question. A year ago when we did this conference, that was a very dominant theme. I think investors were very focused on disruption in the financial services space, and they were very focused on two areas. The first is disruption on the lending side. So this is your play, online lenders going after parts of the personal finance market. 
And second, they were very focused on new entrants into the payment space. And specifically, they were very concerned that you're seeing these new entrants insert themselves between the bank and the client. And over time, they could actually disintermediate banks by really taking control of the payment system, which is integral, obviously, to the banking system, as well as to the overall economy. What you've seen over the last 12 months is that the banks have responded very aggressively. And I do think they've learned their lesson that you can't be complacent and that if you don't move very quickly to combat some of the new entrants, you could end up really getting disintermediated and losing a slice of your most profitable client base. And they've invested very heavily in the payment side in particular. And what you've seen in the last month is the largest banks in the country have launched a product called Zelle, which is the first cooperation that we've really seen in the banking industry between the top 10 banks to go to their clients and offer them an alternative to some of the new online payment systems. And because the banks own the client base, by adding the technology, it gives the clients a very powerful reason to stay with them as opposed to go out and use some of the new technologies that are on offer. So if we take a step back and look at the global financial sector, we seem to be moving in a phase of obviously divergent monetary policy where it seemed to be tightening this time for real in the US and, and Europe is in a very different place and Japan is obviously continuing its own sort of negative interest rate policy. How does that impact the competitive dynamics of the industry on a global basis? The interesting thing about the banking industry is that it is predominantly domestic. So 90% of earnings in the US banking system are derived domestically. And that makes the banking industry actually very different to a number of other S&P sectors that are much more global. So developments in Europe, developments in Japan, really don't have that much of an impact on the majority of US banks. The area it is having an impact is on capital market activity. So for the first time in a long time, you're seeing this genuine divergence in central bank policy around the world with the US tightening, with Japan still in some ways easing and, and Europe kind of somewhere in between. And that's leading to significant moves in FX markets. It's led to a significant pickup in interest rate volatility. And what that is doing is driving both corporate and institutional trading activity in both the rates market and the FX market. I think the other thing it's done though, is it's made the US more attractive for European and, and Japanese banks. I think they're looking at their domestic markets and they're reaching the conclusion that there's going to be very limited growth over the next three to five yeah, years. Hard to make money when it's going rates to be very, are negative. It's going to be very difficult to make money when interest rates are negative. And as a result, I think what you're starting to see is some of those foreign banks are actually starting to double down on some of the operations that they have in the US because they do think it will be a much more structurally profitable market over the next three to five years. So we've been talking about the recovery and there's a lot of optimism in the sector. This recovery has been going on for a while now. Yes. It's, it's one of the longest, or if not the longest, post-war recovery, at least here in the US. So what can we take away from the fact that the banks are seeing prospects for growth over the next year? Does this recovery have legs? I hope so. Over the last eight years, GDP growth in the US has averaged below 2%. As you said, it's been one of the slowest post-war recoveries that the US has slow seen. Slow but long. It's been very slow, <laughs> very long, very long. And I think there is a view that you finally may be hitting an inflection point, partly because consumer confidence has improved, partly because, as I said earlier, consumer balance sheets have been delevered so much, but also, I think, because there is actually a change in economic policy. So you've seen eight years of quantitative easing, of reducing interest rates 
to the lowest level that we've really ever seen, not just in the US, but around the world. But that is now getting supplemented by fiscal stimulus, as well as by a very significant infrastructure spending package. So I think the reason you know, both the banks, but I think also the market, are starting to change their, their growth outlook is because you still have very low interest rates by any historical standard, but you do have these added forms of stimulus that should generate higher levels of economic growth in the form of infrastructure spending and, and a lower corporate tax regime. Richard, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Stewart. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on December 8, 2016. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.